Thanks, Eric, for reading for us, leading us in prayer. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention to you about the Euchre Night. One of the reasons we host these kinds of events is because we're always thinking at Grace Valley about how we can connect our loved ones to Jesus. We all have people in our lives who don't know Jesus. Sometimes it's difficult for us to talk about Jesus with them because we've tried maybe before and it didn't go so well or maybe we've tried time and time again and we've been asked to stop that. Um, or maybe we just haven't tried because we don't know how to bring it up or whatever. And so these kinds of events are, are opportunities for people to be introduced to other Christians. Maybe they don't know many. And uh, in being introduced to other Christians, maybe those other Christians will have opportunity to, to share their faith or their story or what it is about the, the Lord that, that impacts them and makes them want to have a relationship with him. And so if you're thinking, well, you know, I'm not a big Euchre friend, I'm not a, or I'm not a big Euchre guy, or gal, but you've got someone in your life that you want to introduce to Jesus and to the church, and they are, you might still want to come. Uh, because it's an opportunity, like I said, to introduce those folks to, um, to Jesus, and at least through to the people of Jesus, that is, the church. Uh, to all our guests who are with us this morning, boy, you picked a doozy of a Sunday to come to church here. Um, we are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we just happened to come to this passage today, and I said last week that uh, really this is kind of a two-part sermon. Last week, Jesus talked about sexual immorality, and he talked about the danger of sexual immorality, and uh, we looked at that in his teaching on adultery. And at the end of that message, uh, I, I've said, you know, if this is something that you struggle with, if you're struggling with, with a life-dominating sin, an addiction to pornography perhaps, or maybe you have experienced abuse at the hands of someone and you're living with those consequences and you know that it's had a negative effect on your life and, and, and nobody knows about it and you feel it needs to be dealt with, it needs to be brought out into the light somehow, I said, well, please do talk to me, talk to Mark, you can... You can be sure that we will, uh, we, will, we will give you a compassionate ear, an empathetic ear, not a judgmental ear. Uh, what I failed to do was to mention that you can also speak to Jessica uh, or a member of the women's ministry team. And that was a big miss because I don't want us to think that lust is simply a male problem, that it's not something that women struggle with as well. Uh, and I just want to correct that and remind you uh, that we have... Uh, a, a woman on staff in, for one of the reasons we have a woman on staff doing pastoral care type work is because we know that women sometimes feel more comfortable speaking to women about their, their struggles and their issues rather than speaking to a man. So I just want to uh, lay that out for you. But I will start this way for today and just tell you, man, oh man, Jesus is relentless, isn't he? The Sermon on the Mount, it just keeps going. It just keeps going after us. It, it doesn't give us any room to, to wiggle. Last week we saw that, that Jesus believes our sexuality is so precious to him that he doesn't want it to be violated even in the minds of other people. 
whether we know about it or not. Because, and he, you know, he talked about plucking out the eye because that back then was a, was a symbol for the means by which uh, lust tempts us through the eye. So pluck out your right eye. And then he says, you know, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And the reason he says that is because uh, sexual immorality in the Bible is often described as a form of stealing. You are stealing the dignity of another person when you see them as simply a body, simply an object uh, uh, for you to, uh, to violate in your own mind. So that was last week. We saw the negatives. We saw how Jesus went after us that way. And this week, I promised that we would look at what Jesus has to say about human sexuality positively. What is his positive vision of human sexuality? And it comes to us in this context of Jesus teaching on divorce. Why is... Christianity, why is Jesus, why is the Bible so strict, so seemingly inflexible, so seemingly demanding when it comes to the issue of our sexuality? Well, well, this comes to the fore for us in this teaching on divorce here in chapter 5 and in chapter 19. Let me explain the context for what's going on here. By the time of Jesus' day, Divorce in Palestine, the laws were quite loose. And that was to the advantage of men. It was actually disadvantageous. It was not good for women. And it was good for for men. And uh, so in chapter 5, Jesus says this. He says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And then in chapter 19, it's the Pharisees who bring up the fact that Moses said this. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a loose quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And I'm going to read that for you. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Because there's an important phrase in that command that causes this problem with loose interpretations of the law on divorce. It says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, etc., 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 and it keeps going, okay? Now... There's this phrase here. Uh, He finds something indecent about her. Now, this was an ambiguous phrase. And so the rabbis, down through the centuries, were constantly arguing, well, what constituted something indecent about the wife that allows a husband to divorce her? And by the time of Jesus, there's basically two schools of thought. There's the school of Hillel, which said that basically anything a husband finds indecent about his wife is in a, a, a reason and an occasion to allow him to divorce her. Even to the point of she burnt your supper. So that was a very loose interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. The school of Shammai, however, was another rabbinical school and it said no, actually the only occasion for uh, divorce is sexual infidelity. It's adultery. That's the only reason, that's the indecency that Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. And Jesus clearly falls or lands, I should say, on the side of the school of Shammai. He has a much more narrow and conservative view of divorce than the Hitler. 
Bell School that many people were uh, attracted to because it allowed them to get out of a marriage that they didn't want to be a part of. Now, why does Jesus fall down on the more conservative side of things? Well, chapter 19 is where we get Jesus' explanation of human sexuality, and it gives us an, an insight into why Jesus would be so restrictive about divorce. It's because Jesus has a particular understanding of sexuality that he wants to teach us. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The thing is, though, is that I know that there are people here who, who want to know about divorce. You're here, and you want to know whether your divorce was permissible. Or you want to know if your parents' remarriage was allowed. Or you want to know that you're in a bad relationship right now, and you're struggling in a marriage right now, and you want to know... Is it okay for me to divorce and remarry? And I've got to tell you, I can't give you all the answers from the pulpit because there are so many intricacies, there are so many factors, contextual factors that need to be addressed that that it's just unwise for me to try to tell you what the answer is in any specific case. It would take, it, it always takes a tremendous amount of wisdom to determine What's going on in a marriage and what God allows and disallows in a, in a, in a difficult situation. And because things are rarely clear cut. And yet, this is Jesus' teaching on divorce. And, and lest I be accused of ducking the tough questions, something that I've tried to avoid being accused of for my entire ministry, sometimes to my detriment, I want to at least give you certain principles around Jesus' teaching on divorce for a minute, and I'm going to do it pretty quickly. I confess it's going to be pretty quick, and then we're going to move on to the positive teaching on human sexuality. So, here we go. Principle number one, marriage, according to Jesus, is a sacred union between one man and one woman that God intends to last for a lifetime. Now this one needs a bit of explanation because we live in a day and age and in a culture where marriage is not defined that way. Marriage in our culture is defined as simply a, 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 a commitment between two people. But if you look at verses 4 and 5, Jesus is asked about divorce and instead he starts talking about marriage. But notice that in verses 4 and 5, Jesus does not start with the first marriage of Genesis chapter 2. That's when Adam and Eve are brought together in the first marriage recorded in Scripture. Instead, Jesus goes back first to Genesis chapter 1, and he says in verse 4, At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This, 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 uh, this phrase, the two will become, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I'm going to say that a lot, okay? So I'm just going to say it really fast. Uh, that's from chapter 2, where it says the Creator made the male and female. That's from chapter 1. Now, this is an intentional thing that Jesus does because he's connecting our createdness as male and female to our purpose of being united together in marriage. 
And the reason is, is because Jesus is showing us that sexual difference is intrinsic to marriage. Later we're going to see that, that sex is an icon, it is a picture, it is a representation, okay, of, of the union of a man and a woman in a marriage. I'll, I'll explain that later. But, but that union, you need to understand right now, that union is a union of difference. Male and female, they were created as a complementary pair for one another. That's, that's what the act of sexual intercourse is meant to picture. This union, friends, is impossible between two people of the same biological sex. It's impossible to be uh, when it's done between multiple partners. Jesus goes back to Genesis and he says that the design for marriage, the blueprint for marriage is creational. It was designed by God. It's not a relationship like other relationships. You have biological relationships between parents and children. You have social relationships between friends. You have economic relationships between uh, workers and employers or between business people, etc. But one relationship is divinely instituted by God. That's why Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When two people come together in marriage, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, it is not two people just declaring their love for one another. This is a divine mystery in which God himself is joining two people together. So that's principle number one. There's seven of them, and you're thinking, whoa, I did check my watch when I started this sermon. I promise you, it's a long one. (laughs) Principle number two. Divorce is not always sinful, though it is always the result of sin. Number three. Divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. That's what Jesus teaches in chapter 5 and chapter 19. Not simply the act of adultery, but sexual immorality. If you want to know what I mean by that, you've got to go back to last week. I don't have time to unpack it again this week. Principle number four. Divorce is permitted, but not required when an unbelieving spouse deserts a Christian. This is a principle that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And you might say, what, does, what constitutes desertion? How do we know the person is an unbeliever? That's where I said it takes tremendous wisdom to understand the context, and I can't, I can't go into that in detail right now. Number five, principle number five, where divorce is permissible, remarriage is permissible. Principle number six, when divorce is not permissible, any subsequent marriage that is not to your original spouse, is adultery. And let me explain this. I'm just going to quote a preacher that I have a lot of respect for, a man named Kevin DeYoung, and he says this, This does not mean that you aren't really divorced and you aren't really remarried. What it does mean is that you shouldn't have been divorced. The covenant had not been broken and should not have been severed. Consequently, you shouldn't be married to someone other than your original spouse. And that means if you are remarried, when you should not have been, that new sexual relationship is sinful. 
Now, if you're asking yourself, whoa, 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 what do you mean? Like, if this describes me, and I'm, are you saying my marriage, ongoing marriage is sinful, and now I'm, what am I supposed to do, divorce my, my second spouse or my third spouse? What do I do if I'm already in that kind of marriage? Well, principle number seven is this. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but they should repent to be forgiven of their past sins, and they should try to make whatever amends are necessary or possible. And that's vague, understandably, I hope, because, like I've said several times already, I can't go into every specific issue with you from the pulpit. But the reason you should stay as you are is because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 16, verse 20, uh, I think 16, nope, uh, 17, 20, and 22, he, he calls Christians just to remain as you are. Because God does not want you to add to the sin of your remarriage the sin of yet another divorce. And so that remarriage can be God-glorifying if you are open and willing to repent of that sin. And I'll just tell you, this is, a, this is, a, this is not just me, like, you know, giving you the... This is what the Bible says, and if you're feeling hurt in your heart, I don't care. My own parents... We're both married and divorced and then married one another. In my mother's marriage, first marriage, she was probably, it was probably permissible. My father's, maybe not. Both my parents, and I'm very thankful that they found one another and married one another because I wouldn't exist if they didn't. But both my parents, in teaching their children about marriage, used their own stories and said, it was not ideal. It was not what God wanted for us. Neither of them were Christians at the time, and so that's a mitigating factor in understanding what their circumstances were like. But they were not afraid to say, my past was sinful. But the gospel is about forgiveness of sin. You do not have to carry the guilt and the shame of your failures of the past into today. And simply because I'm telling you something, that I'm telling you that the Bible calls something sinful does not mean I'm telling you that you are less than, that you are uh, a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. No. Rather, I'm just pointing out to you what the scriptures teach on this so that we have clarity and we understand what the Lord desires for his people. And once I can finally start talking about the positive aspect of sexual, uh, human, human sexuality, you'll understand why he wants us to be so careful in our relationships. If you want to talk to me more about this afterwards, please feel free to do so. You can also text me. We will not have Q&A after this message because it'll probably be 12.30 and you'll all be hungry. Um, you just looked at your watch and went, oh no. Um, Jesus in chapter 19 gives us a glorious picture, friends, of what human sexuality was meant for. And we're going to look at four things here. It's in verses 4 through 6 where Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. We're going to see four things here. We're going to see the place of sexuality, the pattern of sexuality, the purpose of sexuality, 
And then the promise of sexuality. I got the four Ps that my wife loves. Really, the promise of sexuality should be the future of sexuality, but I needed to impress her with four Ps. So first of all, the place. As I mentioned before, Jesus says that the place for the expression of sexual intimacy is the covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. Jesus, again, he quotes Genesis 20, or 2, verse 24. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you read that Jesus is, or you read there, the story of the very first marriage recorded in the Bible. And God creates Adam, and then afterwards, when he says it is not good for man to be alone, he creates Eve for Adam. And he presents Eve to Adam. And we read in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What is happening here is Adam is presented with Eve, and she's like none of the animals that he's been spending time with up until now. And he's been naming them and... Uh, he's been describing them and understanding what they're like. And he's also been noticing, wait a minute, none of them are quite like me. And then he meets Eve. And he says, wait, now I meet someone who's like me, but not me. We're both human, I can tell that. But you're not a male like I am. You, you complement me. You fit me. That's what Adam is describing when he sees her. And then, in Genesis 2, the next, very next thing is, therefore, that is why, it says in, in, the, in, this ver- in, in this version, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. As I said before, Jesus is saying that marriage is a divine institu- institution created by God, and that is the place where sexual intimacy is supposed to happen. And so we're not free to redefine marriage any old way we want. I know the state has done that in our country and in many other countries. But simply because the state says something is something does not mean that Christians have to say we think that something is something too. The state has done many things that we wouldn't agree with and and wouldn't uh, abide by. And so this is a situation where Jesus says the place for sexual intimacy is in this relationship, a divinely instituted one. That's where sex belongs. Now, why is that where sex belongs? And this, this is the hard one, okay? This is going to be... I've practiced this one, I don't know how many times, and it, I'm always confused by myself. So, sorry if you're confused. <laughs> Remember I said that Jesus combines Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? It's rather amazing that Jesus does this. Because in Genesis 1, he says, he, when, in Genesis 1, it says, God said, let us make man in our image. And God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. So, so man, human beings were created in the image of God as male and female. And then Jesus combines that which right after it says that, by the way, therefore God says to, to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Keep that in mind. And after he says that, he then says, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That's the Genesis 2 passage. What Jesus is showing us here is something astounding. He's saying that the pattern of marriage and human sexuality is the Trinity, is the Godhead itself. God creates them male and female in his image. Not just a male, not just a female, not a couple of males, not a couple of females, 
but a male and a female who together image God because, and, and when they come together in unity, in intimacy, they produce a third person. Not every time that happens is a third person produced and not in every marriage is that possible because we live in a fallen world. But, but before the fall, God's picture of human intimacy was that it would look like the relationship of self-giving, self-donating love between the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They exist in an eternal relationship of, of self-giving love. And as his image bearers, we were created to mirror that same relationship in our marriage. Christopher West is a scholar who wrote a wonderful book called Our Bodies Tell God's Story. And he puts it this way. By making a sincere gift of themselves to each other in spousal love, Adam and Eve discovered the divine love story in their own bodies. Think about it. A man's body makes no sense by itself, nor does a woman's body. But seen in light of each other, sexual difference reveals the unmistakable plan of God that man and woman are meant to be a gift to one another in spousal love. End quote. So marriage and, and sexual intimacy that comes with marriage is meant to mirror the wonder, the beauty, and the creative power of our God. That's the pattern. So the pattern for human sexuality is the Trinity. And this leads to the purpose. We're moving along pretty good now. We're at point three, the purpose of sexuality. I said before that sex is meant to be an icon, meant to be a picture, a representation of this one flesh union that Jesus refers to in Matthew 19 and Genesis 2 refers to in verse 24. Both places, marriage is described as becoming one flesh. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul also refers to the fact that when two people are married uh, in God's eye, in God's sight, that they become one flesh. What does that mean? Is it just talking about the act of sex where you, for a period of time, you, you come together as one flesh? I don't think so. And most scholars don't think so. Because if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now, if it's simply about being one flesh, then it's kind of weird that Paul would say this, because what he's basically saying is, if you have physical union with someone, you have physical union with them. Uh, a duh. If you, if you have sexual relations with someone and bond to them physically, then you've had sexual relations with them and you've bonded to them physically. So, so it does not make sense that that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying so much more. Listen to what one scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, says about this verse. He says, Paul insists that sexual intimacy is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique model of self-disclosure and self-commitment. Translation. 
What Paul is saying here is, is that the act of sexual intimacy is meant to serve as what Tim Keller calls a covenant renewal ceremony. When two people marry, two lives are joined together as one life. That's what scripture teaches. Now, you still have your own personality. It's not like you're lost and now, you know, Paul Vandenbrink doesn't exist anymore. Like, what happened to him when he got married? That's not what, that's not what I mean by this. But the Bible teaches that, that mysteriously and beautifully, when two people marry, two lives become one life and they are shared. So that there's no longer any just Paul Vandenbrink. It's always Paul and Jessica Vandenbrink. There's no longer any just Jessica Vandenbrink. It's always Jessica and Paul Vandenbrink. We are now a shared life together. So you're not only you, but you're part of another. And this is, a, this is a mystery. And many of you who have been married, you understand what I'm getting at because you've experienced that. And so when, when a husband and a wife, when they have sex with one another, when they make love, what they're doing is, is they're expressing that one life commitment. So they're, they're saying we are emotionally united. We are financially united or economically united. We are socially united. We are spiritually united. And when we come together physically... We are picturing that union together because we're saying with our bodies, all that I am and all that I have is yours. And that's why the Bible says we should not have sexual intimacy outside of that oneness. God wants our bodily oneness to confirm our whole life oneness, which means, you know, if you get naked with someone physically before you've gotten naked with them emotionally, spiritually, uh, psychologically, economically, you're damaging this, this commitment covenant uh, ceremonial apparatus. You're misusing it because the commitment isn't there and you're using it outside of its purpose. You know, you know. Those of us who have sexual past where we have used our sexuality outside the context I've just described, you know what I'm talking about. People say, have sex because it feels good. And you say, okay, I'll do that. Fine, you get a dopamine hit. But did you know that during sexual intimacy, there are other chemicals that are released as well. There's oxytocin and vasopressin. And the oxytocin tells a woman that a man is hers. And the vasopressin that is, a, 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 that is released during intimacy tells a man that a woman is hers. These are bonding chemicals. And whenever we engage in intimacy, these chemicals are released. And so when we experience guilt or we experience shame arising in our brains as a result of, a, of, a, of, a, of an intimate encounter that's not within that confines of a, of a marriage relationship, it's like the brain is saying, look, I'm confused. This doesn't feel right. There's something off. And for six decades, our culture has said, look, sex is not a big deal. Sex is really just re relation, uh, recreation. And we've, we've provided people with the pill, and we've said, women, you are now liberated. Go ahead and have sex like men. And it's been devastating for all of us. But it's been especially devastating for women. The number of books that are coming out in the last five years, talking about how women's satisfaction with, with their sex life has dropped consistently, year by year by year by year in the last 30 years, that they are, 
describing how they are unfulfilled and confused, regardless of the fact that we live in a world that now says all you really need is consistent, enthusiastic consent. Women are saying, I wake up the next day and I still feel regret. And I'm writing books about it. Why? Because sex is a bonding agent. It is a picture of this deep oneness that two people share with one another. And when we have sex outside of those contexts, we feel the consequences of that. And that's why God says he hates divorce. Because divorce, friends, is an, is an amputation. If I take... I wasn't going to do this because I thought I wouldn't have time. But I've told you it's going to be long anyway, so I'm going to do it. I do this in my pre-marriage classes with people. Here's you. Here's a man. Here's a woman. They've got a life. Each has a life. They're joined together in this covenant of marriage. And what happens? Now they share a life. It's one whole life. And it's like gluing two pieces of paper together like this. Now what happens when we divorce? It's not that you pull these two apart and go like this again. That's not what happens. God hates divorce because what happens in divorce is that you get this. That's the amputation. Now, you've got to understand, listen carefully to what I'm saying. Sometimes, doctors will tell you, sometimes amputation is necessary. Sometimes, if your body is, is in need of an amputation, sometimes it has to happen. Because if a villain gets into a relationship and they start tearing things up, you can be destroyed unless there is a divorce. And so remember, God allows for divorce in those circumstances. But let us not pretend that divorce is simply two people consciously uncoupling. Divorce is one life being torn up and thank God that by his grace our lives can be restored I have parents who, who were illustrations of that their lives were able to be restored by his grace so if that's you if you've been in this situation you don't have to believe that all is lost nevertheless maybe someone in this room is saying well what if, what if I am the villain what if I'm the one who blew it is there no hope for me or maybe someone is saying, I was abused by someone else's sexuality. They, they hurt me deeply. And I feel shame and I feel dirty because of it. Or maybe someone here says, well, I abused my sexuality. I used it in ways I shouldn't have. I was not chaste, to use the old language. I had sex before commitment. Am I permanently damaged? Is that what you're telling me? Or maybe you're someone who's saying, I'm married to someone who broke vows and I live with the effects of that. I live with the pain of that. Is there any hope for me? Well, the first thing we all need to remember is that none of us is entirely innocent. Like every other part of our lives, friends, we've all made a muck of our sexuality. Even if you were, were uh, victimized by someone, we have responses that are not always positive responses to that. And whether we're gay or straight or bisexual or wherever we want to place ourselves on a spectrum of sexuality, we need to own up to the fact that, that we're not... We're all crooked. 
And yet, 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 there is so much hope that Jesus offers. And this is the last point, the promise of sex or the future of sex. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus says something weird. (laughs) Man, this thing is driving me nuts. He says something weird. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus all of a sudden starts talking about eunuchs. What's that about? What's what's going on here? Well, well, under the Mosaic law, eunuchs were, were not allowed to participate in the worshiping life of the people of Israel. They were not allowed to go to the temple. They were excluded because they were considered sexual outcasts. And Jesus is saying, no more. No more will that be the case. You see, in the Old Testament, this is how it worked. If you were clean and you came into contact with something unclean, that made you unclean, and therefore if you wanted to be clean, you had to go through a whole bunch of ritual purification uh, 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 rituals in order to be made clean again and to re-enter the community. So if a leper touched you or you touched a leper, boom, now you're unclean. You don't necessarily have leprosy, but you're ritually unclean, and now you have to go and do these purification rites in order to be made clean again. And Jesus is saying, no more. He's saying, I make you clean. Jessica and I are watching this show called the, I think it's called The Chosen. It's about the life of Christ right now. I cry every episode, ball my eyes out. She sits beside me and just goes like, what is wrong? As soon as I see the character of Jesus, I just start weeping. But yesterday, it, he, he healed a leper. He touches, he touches him and he is healed. And that's what Jesus says to every one of us who has sexual brokenness in our lives. He says, I touch you. Or if you touch me, you are healed. You are pure. You are undefiled. undefiled. You are clean. Because you see, you're united to your groom. See, this is what the entire Bible is about, okay? Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. Paul quotes that in Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking about marriage, and then he quotes that, right? And you say, fine, yeah, that's, that's what's happening in marriage. And he says, this is a profound mystery. And anybody who's married says, yeah, marriage is kind of mysterious. I've got to admit that. And then Jesus says something, or Paul says something out there. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. Because Paul is saying that the marriage relationship and including the sexual intimacy that comes with it is actually ultimately about the gospel. Sam Alberry puts this beautifully when he says, the story of the universe is a story of romance between God and his beloved creation. The story of the scriptures is the story of God rescuing his beloved creation from the ruin of the fall. And at the center of that story is the story of Jesus, God's son, who came into this world as a bridegroom determined to rescue his dear bride, the church, from sin and death and judgment so that he could one day be fully and eternally united to her. What God would join together, no one would ever be able to separate. See, each of us is actually created to be in an 
ultimate marriage with the ultimate lover, our Lord Jesus Christ. The church is his bride and he is the bridegroom. And when you read Ephesians 5, when Jesus taught, when Paul says this is how husbands should behave, he says something amazing. He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to what? Make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's what the true lover does. Now, the applications of this are not infinite. Although, maybe I'll find out when I go to heaven. Yeah, Jesus will say, actually, they were infinite. You, you blew that one. But I want to focus in on a couple of applications. One is, to those of you who are unmarried and wish you were, you hear this whole sermon on the beauty of sexuality and the symbolism of it, etc., etc., please understand that even the most rapturous sexual love between a husband and a wife is really just a dim foretaste and pointer to what's going to be the fullness that we all share in the arms of our true spouse. Now, if you say, well, that is small consolation because I want to be in a relationship where I get to, I get to express my sexuality uh, um, and I don't want to have to wait. Well, friends, your husband's waiting. Jesus is waiting. And he asks you to bear the burden of that weight too. And you can know intimacy and you can know romance or closeness in other relationships that are not going to perfectly mirror the sexual one I know. But whatever you miss out on in this life, do understand you are not missing out on it eternally. You are not missing out on it completely. And whatever, 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 as I said, rapturous married relationship we see on this earth is if you look under the hood, you'll discover it's not all as good as it sounds very often because humans who do marry one another often fall into the error of trying to find in that partner the thing that only Jesus as the true lover can provide. And so many, many marriages are not what they're meant to be because we put way too much pressure on our spouse to be something that they were never created to be. And so married people in that relationship right now who are thinking to themselves, I just want to pack it in. What's the point? Jesus says, remain as you are and remember that the true lover awaits you at the last day where you too will find in him the fullness of intimacy that each and every one of us is longing for. Remain as you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a tough subject.
What a beautiful thing sexuality is, but what a beautiful thing it is to know that actually our ultimate intimacy is awaiting us in the new creation with our bridegroom Jesus. Help us in a way, live to live in a way that honors him who is waiting for us as we wait for that day too. And may we prepare ourselves for that day by living chaste lives, whether we're married or not. May we guard and protect and nurture our sexuality the way that Jesus wants us to because it is so remarkably precious to him. And forgive us, Father, for the ways where we have failed in that regard and remind us again and again and again that we are clean, we are undefiled because you have touched us. You have touched us with your Son by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.